0: I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from a sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world from mega yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen. Captain Scott said
1: Hello, Todd. Uh, weather today is—we uh, still have some uh, gale force um, winds out there, and um, so everybody keep your keep your uh, hatches closed and um, stay a little bit dry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you can say yes, Todd, because because you know what I I know people people don't understand that that you know when, when there's a gale force wind and you're sitting in the dock and you're rocking around and the wind is blowing and all you can hear are your neighbor's halyards clanging up against their mass mostly uh, aluminum mass and you you want, you don't ever remember to tell them when you next see them, please tie off your halyards so it doesn't bang against the the mast because it's driving me insane. And but you always forget that, but that's a part of boating life. And my advice to everyone: please tie off your halyards before a good solid wind or every day that you when you leave the boat. But <laughs> I digress. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the bit of advice. <laughs> uh, so,
0: what do we have planned for this week's episode?
1: well this week's episode is um, I, I ran across the books of um, uh, Patrick O'Brien and many of you will know the movie uh, master and Commander which is the title of this and it's really a, about how reading a wonderful book with wonderful detail and immersiveness into a real uh, the age of sailing um, and everything that comes with it, the, the the natural philosopher, the medicine, the way people ate, the way people thought, um, very detailed, very dense, very interesting. And in fact, well, it could take a couple of times to read. But I always felt like these books um, added so much more to my um, sailing experience. There's so much more that you can be, that you can gain from this, from reading the book and then going out and sailing. And, um, it just makes you, you know, I think it makes you a better sailor and it makes you more aware of the, of the, the path that many others have walked on.
0: Okay, great. Take it away, Scott.
1: 1990, I was chartering in the Greek islands and uh, along the Turkish coast. They call it the Blue Coast. It's Marmaris, Gocek, Bodrum, Greek islands, uh, Rhodes, Simi. I've discussed a lot of these in passing. I spent many years there, so a lot of the stories that come from there are pretty fresh. But I had... um, Been looking for some books to read as a lot of us that are on boats. Now, I've been on boats. um, I started sailing personally, um, probably when I was in the womb, but really, I think I started sailing like I was, you know, holding a sheet, I think, when or holding a tiller when I was something like six or seven. And off and on through the next 60 years, I have sailed all sorts of vessels and had all sorts of exciting and adventurous times. And I've been off boats um, periodically for a while. But, you know, like a lot of us, you know, we're modern people. We have, uh, unless we have an exact job of being on the water, which I did for many years. uh ran tugboats in uh, New York Harbor uh, when I was a... Uh, High school senior. I, I worked on uh, oar boats in the Great Lakes. I um, hope to bring you um, a couple of uh, freshwater sailors in the future. I sailed a lot of boats, raced, International 14s, spent some time on schooners, um, power boats, mega yachts. Uh, pretty much you know, covered a lot of bases in the last, let's say 60 years, along with being educated um, and going to college and getting a master's degree and all these other wonderful things that you do to make your life better. And if there's anything I can say about this, char- this podcast is I'm interested in showing, revealing, and getting people to think about what um, they can do to better their lives and in sailing i think this discovery is much more evident than maybe any other kind of occupation or endeavor because uh sailing does require and it comes with a long history of realization and edification and i think this is uh, an important thing now with that said The American Mariner owes a great debt to English maritime history, industry, the trading, the Royal Navy. And to understand that kind of influence on the American Mariner, because you have to understand the American Mariner is kind of fresh to the scene in terms of world history, about 300 years um, for the most part, sailing was um, dominated um, by the English, uh, the French, Spanish, and Dutch. And that's sort of what the America, North America, has seen as dominating sailing influences from these particular countries. And there's, of course, a lot of things to go over and a lot of history involved with it, and a lot of really fascinating things. But in my life, in this sailing life that we've chosen, in 1990, I came across a book, and it was called The Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien. And that changed the way I saw my sailing life. I read this book with absolute, absolute, attention to detail. And it was the beginning of a love affair with Patrick O'Brien and his characters of Jack Aubrey and Steve Matarin. It is safe to say, the New York Times has said it, the London Times has said it, the New York Times Book Review has said it, along with many, many other notable reviews that Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey, Steve Martin series is the best historical fiction ever written. I wholeheartedly agree. And in the first sentence of the book, the music room of the governor's house at Port Mahon, a tall, handsome, pillared octagon was filled with the triumphant first movement of Locatelli's C major quartet. And with those words, millions and millions of readers have discovered the work of Patrick O'Brien through like 20 novels. And it is the novels have chronicled the voyages of Steve Martin, Jack Aubrey through the shoals and deep water of friendship. Love, War, and Life. Now, what is important about these books is their detail, their absolute religious obligation to truth, the, the amount of information in creating this world on these ships that Jack is the captain, or the commander, and then the captain, and then the admiral, the commodore, put the Commodore in there. And it's it's just a miracle that these were ever gotten out. But in 1990, Norton actually published, uh, I forget how many, maybe 16 of them or 17 of them. There were a few more to come after that. And the books actually took a lot of people by storm. So in the series... You have sort of like the the pleasures of like the, the Three Musketeers or Sherlock Holmes. You know, you've got high adventure. you got characters who become friends for life. Um, they provide, in terms of fiction, it's a very complex relationship that they have because they're such different characters. Um, it starts the next day after the concert, which... Uh, Steve, uh, Stephen elbows Jack because Jack is keeping time and thumping. He's a big, blonde-head, blue-eyed brute of a man. Um, Sixteen stones, you know, powerful. Um, and Russell Crowe was close in, in Master Commander. Um, maybe not quite that close, but close enough to, to give you a feel for what the character is. And Stephen was a thin... Um, pale, l- weak-looking man, but he elbows Jack, and they get into a little tussle—a verbal tussle, I should say—and Jack apologizes very much because this is his nature. He's—he's he's a nice guy, and Stephen is also a nice guy, but he is—he's a, a loner, and he's—he's he's calculating, and he is can strike at any time. And what happens with this relationship is, um, Jack isn't gets his first command. Okay. And, um, Steven signs on as a surgeon. And then over the course of like the next (laughs) 5,000 pages, they survive shipwrecks and pitched battles, disease, betrayal, storms, imprisonment, bankruptcy, heartbreak. Um, and their friendship stays unbelievably strong. And actually, I think in the book, there's only one note in which Diane, who has become Steve Martin, uh, who becomes Stephen uh, Madarin's um, wife, who's the dashing, beautiful, raven-haired uh, beauty, who's got a mind of her own, um Jack and, and, and Stephen become um, uh, suitors, and there's a competition. And, um, you know, it, it. there were some problems with that, but that's about the only time that the two digressed outside of some of the other moments when Stephen wants to get off the boat and go um, naturalizing. He's a natural philosopher, which means he is doing at the time in the 1800s, um, or the early 1900s, the, um, uh, the mission of, of Sir Joseph Banks and a young Darwin of, uh, categorizing every bug animal plant on the earth. And there's still a great deal of work to do today to do that. Um, But uh, naturalists, uh, this is their job. And Stephen was a volunteer amateur, but uh, had written a number of great papers and was highly regarded by the royal societies, and as well as being a surgeon. Now, he was a bit better than a doctor. A surgeon on a ship would normally be, you know, sort of a glorified nurse. But Stephen was actually a real... A certified medical school doctor, which was quite rare, and um, gave him a, a great deal of uh, authority over the men, um, because they understood that he was. Uh, it was uncommon for them to be able to have an opportunity to speak to somebody about their problems, who was so well educated, and he was. He could speak many different languages. Um, he studied uh, literature, art, um, philosophy, and uh, many of these things come out in the discussions between Jack and and Stephen and Stephen and other characters that kind of roam in and out of the the stories. And they become um, a touchstone to realizing the character of the place and the time. Because he creates this whole... um, Patrick O'Brien creates this whole spirit of the entire age, and even when you go and you think about um, Locatelli's um, Concerto at Sea, is all of Locatelli's is is really a work um, that's uh, that is dashing and um, has nobility to it and um, has a, 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 a sachet. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful piece of work to articulate exactly um, the kind of music that they were listening to at the time. And the pursuits are constantly, you know, there's a lot of time on these ships and officers would, could play violin as Jack did and could play viola as, as uh, Stephen did. But they played the, the German lute. Um, they played many, many different kinds of things. There's one story in which uh, a captain in the West Indies has a, uh, has a piano a harpsichord um, in his cabin to play. And he's, he's actually found somebody who was a piano tuner and, and, and knocked him on the head and <laughs> got him in the Navy. And um, he can't leave. He just has to tune his harpsichord. It's a great tradition. It's a great, a great insight into what people are doing. And reciting poetry and reciting stories; these were common things. Uh, no internet, no TV, no radio. You had to create your own entertainment. And reading. If you look at reading at this time, uh, maybe the most famous book was um, Stern, um, and you had a number of other books that had come out. Um, Madame uh, Madame Bovary, uh, these novels, this the idea, the concept of the novel was something brand new. never had novels before, It was just all new. This was new stuff. So for these men and these characters, which I think Patrick O'Brien gets across is this is an amazing time for them. Just an absolutely amazing time. And one of the things that I have found that it influenced me tremendously being, you know, I'm an English major, etc., and, and I read and I write. What amazes me is, is just the architecture of the world that Patrick O'Brien has set. And as I sailed, every single one of these little passages in a book had a kind of place in my head while I was sailing my boat or sailing a boat, right? Um just as, a, just as an example, um, O'Brien writes, and this is a master and commander, says, we shall have to get the top off her presently, Mr. Dillon, he observed, picking up the transverse board. Okay, that's a board that, that marks the direction and degree um, of the tacks, if you're tacking into the wind. He consulted it more as a matter of form than anything else, for he knew very well where they were, and with some sense that develops in a true seaman, he was aware of the loom of the land. A dark presence beyond the horizon behind him, behind his right shoulder blade. They had been beating steadily up into the wind, and the pegs showed almost equal boards, east-northeast, followed by west-northwest. They attacked five times. Sophie the name of the vessel they were on, was not as quick in stays as he would have wished, and worn once. They had been running at seven knots. These calculations ran their course in his mind, and as soon as he looked over it, for it, the answer was ready. Keep on this course for a half an hour, and then put her almost before the wind two points off. That will bring you home. Now, I know, I, for me, this is like, I, I have spent more time, you know, coming into, it brings me into mind of coming into certain ports, um, of having to tack into these ports, um, you know, upwind, um, all, you know, everything that you you could think of, this writing um, stayed in my mind, gave me confidence about being able to make that buoy into the entrance okay it showed me how in mentally and spiritually how to calculate you know this tack that tack the transverse board how to keep it in my mind to know exactly where i am in terms of the boat and and this is one of the reasons i'm talking about this today is because i think it can do the same thing for you but the characters themselves were are fascinating because Jack Aubrey is, is, is clumsy, um, guileless, uh, he's incapable of managing his own financial affairs. I mean, he makes so much money. I mean, he would be like Bezos today, making so much money and, in and getting shit, you know, uh, uh, taking ships and, and, and getting paid and all the rest of he, he was, he was quite a little bit of a rogue. Uh, he was foolish with women and, um, But when he was uh, in command of a British man of war, the most complex machine of his age that they could possibly build, he was an instinctive leader and a perfectly efficient predator. And I say this, that he was a predator. He was somebody that, you know, he went to hunt for ships. Now, Jack's character is based ever so slightly on Cochrane. Lord Cochrane. Lord Cochrane was very famous about taking prizes and became quite rich. He also got into a lot of trouble on land. And O'Brien has said this, and if you look up Lord Cochrane, you'll find out that he is, or was, I should say, he was quite an amazing good, dude. His little eight gun ship, which goes in the master and commander story, his little eight gun ship, uh, he took a 36 gun Spanish frigate. And he did it through guile. He did it through just plain being cleverer than the other guy. And he began to collect prizes left and right. And this was mostly along the Spanish uh, coast, Mediterranean, Spanish coast, and the Balearics. This is where most of that action happened. But there is, so there is kind of some real characters that are involved here because literally every battle. Every voyage that's in these books has been researched. They're actually true voyages. What the characters are doing, of course they're not, because it's fiction, how they're feeling and all the rest. But the actual actions and, and some of the comments and the sayings and stuff will all be found in, in different um, uh, diaries, um, in the Naval Chronicle, etc. So there's a lot of research that's gone into it, and a lot of it is pretty, pretty self-evident when you go to just take a quick look at it. So, Stephen is Jack's antithesis. He's the son of an Irish officer and a Catalonian lady. Um, he He was a disillusioned Irish revolutionary who has made common cause with his natural enemy, the British crown, to defeat an even greater evil, which was the tyrant Napoleon. And Stephen is a physician, as I said. He's a naturalist, as I said, and a linguist. But he's also an intelligence agent. And this is what makes the books, I think, uh, bristle with excitement. If you like spy stories, this is a great spy story. It's not always about Steven. It's not always about Jack. It's about their relationship. Because Jack is taking an intelligence agent someplace. And this intelligence agent is always giving Jack inside information on how to become successful to find this ship and all the rest of this kind of stuff. You know, they, they get this shipment of gold, which is a huge story. And it happens that they conquer the ship. They take the ship with all this gold on it, and it finds out that, um, you know, that they, the treaty had had just been signed. So they, it, it was like a crazy thing, and th- you get into all the bureaucratic stuff about doing that. But Stephen helps... Jack's career quite a bit, as his particular friend, and then Jack has has the skill, he has the bravery, and he has the luck, and they call him Lucky Lucky Jack, um, because he always finds the big ship with lots of the prize with lots of uh, gold or whatever coffee, whatever the case may be. And oh, and by the way, if you're a coffee lover, this this book always talks about coffee. Grinding coffee and finding coffee beans is, coffee is like their main drink outside of, of wine, grog, beer. Coffee is their, is, is their religious uh, drink between the two of them. They always share a pot in the morning to, to wake them up. It's, it's, it's kind of a fun little thing that always goes on. But the book, in a sense, and this is why I think it's important for sailors today to read the book. I mean, the book may be difficult to read language-wise um, because O'Brien uh, spends a great deal of time um, discussing medicine like it was practiced. He uses a lot of uh, vocabulary that you may be unfamiliar with. But I can tell you there's, there, is, there are books, there are dictionaries, O'Brien dictionaries, that you can look up. Uh, the food, for example, there is an entire cookbook that has been created of all the food that they served um, on the ship, you know, sous, soused pig's head, which is one of Jack's favorite, you know, the different puddings, um, suet pudding, and things of that nature, and how they cooked it, um, you know, how they cooked the, the beef and the hardtack and all the rest of that. And it's very interesting because you can you can get some information out of that for your own sailing needs, you know, and how they kept things and, and how they managed to, you know, keep uh, to keep their spirits up, you know. And, um, you know, one of the worst things is, is, of course, grog and drinking. There was a lot of drinking. And, um, you know, 350, 400 men on them. 160-foot ship, that's a lot of people. And um, that's a lot of, it's a lot of rum to drink and lime juice. Lime and, lime juice and, and, and rum was to uh, keep down the scurvy. They didn't eat, those people didn't eat a lot of vegetables at the time. Um, they ate some vegetables, um, not as many as they should. And if you've ever wondered why we call the, the British limeys, that's exactly the reason because they always had limes for their rum and, and that's how they kept away scurvy. And the same thing goes why we call the, the Germans krauts. You know, Germans were called krauts in the, in, in, in the war because they all carried um, sauerkraut. And, and sauerkraut is a very good source of vitamin C to keep, um, to keep down scurvy. And there's a number of other little kind of like, you know, facts like this that you can pick up and you can learn through the book, which I think are really interesting. And and O'Brien, when he went to write these books, um, and these go back because he had written these books like late 70s, some of them in the late, Master and Commander was like 72, maybe. And then there was a couple of periods where he didn't write any books or he wrote books and that weren't successful or published. But O'Brien, you know, he, he went to the National Maritime Museum in, in Greenwich, which I am dying to go to. That's a bucket list place for me. The British Public Record Office. He read the logs of captains and masters and lieutenants. He studied ship plans. He scoured the memoirs and the correspondence of all the great commanders like Collingwood, Samorez, Howe, Hood, Nelson. And he immersed himself in the Navy Chronicle which was a monthly journal that ran through the entire period. And it was full of firsthand accounts of battles, personal information concerning sailors, scientific letters, and anything else connected to the day-to-day life of the Royal Navy. And it's just, I've looked at a few Naval Chronicles myself, and they are amazing. They are like must read stuff if you love sailing and sailing history. Um, the, gl- the glimpses into what these people are doing. Because, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, of all the historical lessons, most important historical lessons that we put, that as times change, okay, ships change, you know, nuclear submarine, aircraft carrier, all these platforms, different kind of platforms, the one thing that doesn't happen to people do not change that much that they have the same griefs and follies and there's certain kinds of victories and, 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 and mistakes and, 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 defeats between men and women. Um, there is in fact, you know, The emotions that everybody felt back then are the same emotions we feel today, and and they're sort of like a a map, a um, a, an org of our 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 own lives, and I think O'Brien does a a marvelous job at this kind of connection, this kind of masculine connection, as well as a feminine connection. Now he is as, as this period was. Um, very misogynistic, uh, women had no rights. Um, their husbands were everything. If their husbands died and they owed debt, they paid it. And the women ended up being poor and, and put out. doesn't sound too different than today, but anyway, that's kind of how that went. Um, parliament worked kind of the same way. So all of this Business of this beauty, these beautiful novels, and and every single one of them has got its own like wonderful like peaks into you know certain places. Like you know, Jack and Stephen were held captive um, in Boston, and they have this whole thing in Boston, this this adventure in Boston, and they rediscover. Um, Diana, and she's escaping this this crazed um, agent, and Stephen outfoxes all of them, and they escape on a boat. and it, it talks about the battles between the United States Navy, the Constitution, and and the and how the Constitution won so many battles, and and how the Americans won so many battles in the War of eighteen twelve. Okay, that that it was it was demoralizing for the British Navy. And but they always the British Navy always considered the Americans as their brothers. You know, they they sailed and operated ships basically the same way, except as as Jack Aubrey um, noted. He said um, he would have never countenanced men standing around with their hands in their pockets chewing and spitting tobacco everywhere. Um, this, this, that, was, that was his view of the American sailor, although he believed that the American sailor was very brave, very courageous, uh, very, very well-versed uh, sailor, and extremely generous. And American sailors have always known, been known for their extreme generosity. And it comes out in this book many, many, many times. Um, Desolation Island is one of those where an American whaler actually saves uh, Jack and Stephen. Although Stephen, in a weird way, didn't want to be saved because he was on the island of his dreams, which was a naturalist's heaven in the middle of the south, um, in the southern, southern ocean. And um, he found it, you know, fascinating with the seals and turns and birds and boobies and all kinds of everything so let me go back a little bit to why I think sailors and myself I've always I always kept coming back to the novels I've literally read these novels the whole series I, I I'm saying four times maybe five times I'm not sure these are the these are the books that after I've read something, um, a, a book or something, I've, I've just read a few books on John, I've read a book on John, um, John Barry, a famous revolutionary uh, ship captain, uh, American captain, and a few other books. And I have a fairly eclectic um, uh, reading history. And but I always come back to these books because they dramatize a vigorous life. Um, it's a way of, of, of existing both, uh, naturally in nature and also in a kind of well ordered society. It's kind of a dream society to a certain extent, although it's not a society I would personally, um, like to reproduce. But if you spend a lot of time making a lot of long distance, um, sailing and you have a fairly large crew, there is a sort of hierarchy there's a sort of an organization of your society that takes place but the sea is a place of both clarity and decisiveness for o'brien where the where the earth the terrestrial war, world is a source of of uh, con men and ill humors and sickness and just complaint and Stephen is sort of broaches that world. He, he made a notice that as, a, as an observation that when the sailors finish their shore leave and they come back on the boat, that um, there's lots of complaints and problems and venereal disease and depression and all the rest. But once they get out to sea, there's a cheerful resilience a competent readiness, an open conversability, a certain candor, and this is what he thinks happened. This is what happens to the American sailor, and I think we can all agree that when we get out sailing, that that there is a kind of, you know, vigorous, cheerful resilience about sailing. It's fun to be there. It's great to be there. It's 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 strong. It's it's a test. It's a wonderful feeling. So for those who who, who, who love sort of the old ships and the old stories, and the old schooners and all the rest of this, um, and the integration of nature and man, okay, um, still exists today. And I've been trying to get this across in some of, some of my podcasts. I may have a tendency to sort of wander off and tell stories that don't necessarily seem connected, but are in fact very connected. And uh, maybe a podcast is not exactly the perfect place for a unconnected sideways look at the world. But in my view, I think if you listen carefully that you'll find that there's an integration between the nature of sailing, the sailor, and the society that he lives in. And the rigging for example the taunt as O'Brien writes the taunt rigging sang with greater urgency the sound of the water racing along the side mounted to a diffused roar the complex orchestra of cordage wood under stress moving sea and wind all pervading sound exalting to a sea-born ear. And I think that's how we feel. I think that's where we are. Now, in this relationship of these books to me, as and I hope that I open some doors for your own reflection on this, is during the books, he takes a number of voyages. And I'll just just mention two of them, two places. Briefly, that majority. I know many of my English friends and European friends have been to, which is Port Mahon, which is in the Balearics. And the first time I sailed up there, there's a lot of writing about that because um, Jack Aubrey has it was uh, occupied by the English for many many years, then uh, reoccupied by the Spanish, and the wars in Europe could sort of changed sides. So there's a he had to go up and sail into Port Mahone to rescue um, Stephen, who was captured as a spy. And um, they were breaking his fingers um, under torture. And it was a, and Jack would not leave his friend. Um, it's a very noble rush. And it's, it's quite an amazing thing, um, story-wise. But they had to tack up, up Port Mahone because it's a long channel. And it's very, the mountains around it are very tall. So it's like this long, thin kind of um, leg of water that goes into where the town of Port Mahone is. And it's still, I, I had this, I sailed up that port. And in fact, I, I tacked several times to get into the port because of the wind. And eventually I just kind of gave up and I had to turn on my motor. But I kept thinking, oh, Jack would have kept tacking. Jack would have kept tacking. He would have had the guys out with the oars rowing his boat into Port Mahone. But every time I've been in Port Mahone many, many times, and every time I go in there, all I think about is the, the novels and the adventures that he is there. And that makes a certain sense of place to realize, okay, what other sailors have been there? Like you can feel you're standing in the shoes of the people from history. Now, Genoa is another place that's very similar to me. This is Columbus's home. And Gen- Genoa is, is just a is a wonder. It's a commercial port. It's kind of a dirty port. It's kind of a stuck up in a corner in Italy. Um, it's got funky winds. Um, it, it, But it's a lovely port. All in all, you'll find a lot of really beautiful yachts sitting up there. They have a boat show up there. But even walking around Genoa, looking at different statues and the nautical history, the, you know, the whole Venetian Genoas, they were sailing around the world long before the English um, could butter their bread. So it kind of, when you see, when you read these stories, it gives you a sense of what this place, the place that you're going to. It's the same with Boston. I've been in Boston, you know, dozens of times. And, but after reading Aubrey's um, experiences in Boston, even though the buildings are gone and the port is still there and, and you get the feel, you can, you could smell the history of the place, and that is, that is, to me, one of the super positive things of being, you know, reading these books and being a sailor at the same time, because they have that kind of effect. Now, there's a kind of an interesting thing, too, is, is that American trade and American whaling, which pops up throughout the books, um, they're at times adversaries and other times they're just victims of jack jack and um but sometimes they're not sometimes they you know jack ends up protecting them to a certain degree um but the one thing to know is is that during this period the 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 british this is after this is probably 18 16 18, 19, the british were really at wit's end um Napoleon had been captured. He'd been defeated. He had been exiled. He had come back from exile, and then he had been exiled again after they captured him, which plays parts in the book and the parts in the story. But the British Navy was worn out. They were worn out because they didn't have. They chopped down basically every every oak tree they could find in all of England, and to build boats with. Because these boats take a tremendous amount of timber and wood. But the Americans had all the timber and wood you could possibly get. That's why the Constitution, by the way, was one of the, still one of the greatest um, design and greatest wooden boats ever built. Um, you know we're talking about wood that cannonballs bounce off of. You know, it's that kind of oak, um, that kind of, you know, 16 inches thick of, of wood. And she still could sail, and she could sail fast. And Jack admired that. In fact, if you watch Master and Commander when he refers to the model of the ship, that, well, what a technological age we live in, right? That is basically the hall of the Constitution that he's talking about. Because the movie Master and Commander, the story Master and Commander are two different things. The Master and Commander movie has several elements of other books that are all strung together to make one movie story. And it's still my best-selling movie ever, period, done. I love that movie. I'll watch it a hundred times. Easy. But there's something else about these books that sort of... Just not, just not the sailor in me, or just not the sailor, um, on how they affect it, um, people through their time, and I think they still do affect people um, who read them. And this is this is what great literature is about: how they have a kind of uh, timeless quality of of of, of influence. Um, I was I was in um, Greece and I had a charter, and the charter was uh, the owner of the boat I was driving. Um, he and his, uh, his wife had come down, and they were, they were, he was the president of American University in Athens. And at the time, it was a very complex time politically for him and other people. And he had the uh, charge d'affaires for the embassy in Greece and they were all taking a vacation on the boat so we said we're sailing around you know the guy the charge d'affaires. i think his name was david um we're sailing around he had his family there We we had bodyguards on there because there was some some question about um security and uh, some funny stories with the bodyguards and whatever and Anyway, so we were all sailing around and, you know, taking them to places and they're eating and we're all having fun. And we would anchor and they they would all go swimming and stuff. And what I would do is I would rest. And I, at the time I was reading um, Jack Aubrey and Patrick, you know, all the Patrick O'Brien books. And I was just sitting in the pilot house um, reading the books and David came in to me and he says, oh, what are you reading? And I said, Oh, Patrick O'Brien, he's the greatest best historical fiction ever, which I always say. And he goes, Oh, that's amazing. He says, um, he said he was on the plane with the ambassador, which is Robert V. Keeley, um, who's a very famous American um not only as a, as a as an ambassador to Greece but because of his knowledge of history and some of the books he wrote. But his brother, Edmund Keeley, is a translator um, from Princeton and one of uh, the great Greek translators of poetry. And one of my favorites is, is uh, Janos Ritsus, who is very important uh, poet to me and a journey that I have taken with a poet, um, his journey... Um, where he lived. He lived in Samos, and there's a couple of little things about him and, you know, the whole post-Second uh, World War uh, Greek history stuff. So I was like really familiar with his brother, and I was familiar with Edmund, his other brother who, was, who, who taught at Princeton. And he, and David told me, he said he was recently on a plane um, with the Secretary of State, and at the time it was Madeleine Albright, and she said, He said everybody was reading the Patrick O'Brien books. And I thought to myself, Wow, that's kind of curious. Why, why is that? And he said, They're reading it because of his, the way he has written about leadership and the way he treats people and his tactical choices both um, emotionally and um, physically, and they found it to be an interesting um, allegory, I guess, of what um, things could be today. So things change, time changes, but people don't. So some of his practices, Jack's practices, were, were equally um, admired by the Secretary of State and all the rest of that. So I ended up, I, I said, well, you know what? I said, do you have these books? And he goes, no, we don't have any, any books. So I ended up giving him, I think at the time it was 16 books. I said, here, this is for the embassy. And and hopefully people will read them because they have a library in the embassy in Athens. So he left with uh, 16 or 18 uh, volumes of, uh, of Patrick O'Brien. And I thought, this is really great. This is fantastic. And off he, you know, he took him, he was very happy to take him and I was very happy to donate him. And, um, I felt like, okay, this is, this is kind of some cool stuff because when you read some of the story, like in some of the stories, you you will see that there are writers there as 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 captains there are people who 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 write poetry who recite poetry. There's a series um, in the Fortune of War and the Surgeon's Mate where two of the lieutenants are uh, competing with each other. Or was it uh, the Ionian mission? Well, anyway, they're they're competing with each other on different types of poetic verse. And this just brings you into the whole atmosphere of what a ship may be, and what the uh, gun room was like, and and what it was like dining in for breakfast with uh, with Jack Aubrey, with uh, coffee and bacon and you know everything else, uh, a flying fish, you know sauteed flying fish or fried flying fish, um, just all this kind of interesting uh, feel. So. The most important thing is, is and I is to remember that sometimes, um, and very rarely, are there books that can come across that really give you a sense of what sailing was like and how you could take those sailing experiences that are written so so well and so eloquently and apply them to your own experience of going out on your, you know, on your. 25 foot catalina or your 40 foot beneteau or whatever case whatever boat you're driving these days or sailing these days and still have a sense of the historical and and intuitive knowledge that you can gain from these novels and so that's kind of my take on it and um, thank you very much um, for listening and remember patrick o'brien Get all it's Jack Aubrey, Steve Martin. Thanks.
0: Thanks for sharing, Scott, and uh, giving us your, your special perspective as a sailor in, in reading these books. I think it was very insightful. So what do we have planned for next week's episode?
1: Uh, next week, I'm going to talk about solo sailing. Um, I'm going to give you some technical, um, some technical do's and don'ts, and uh, also um, just to sort of recount some of the experiences I've had in
0: solo sailing. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to leave us a review. You can find past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook and offshoreexplorer.org. Our theme song is sung by Paulette Miff-Williams, with additional music by Amano Itomi and Tommy Twain.
1: Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.